Good morning, guys. So as I've gotten older, um, especially in the last couple of years, I've noticed that I've started to enjoy Christmas less and less. Um, my, my family is well aware of this. Um, there, this is just an example. So um, one rule in my house is that I don't want to hear Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Um, so I, I, that's how I feel. Um, also, um, I don't really care what day it is. It can be any day in December. I still don't want to hear Mariah Carey sing. Um, all I want for Christmas is you. Some other people might um, agree with me. I also am not a huge fan of So This Is Christmas, and I feel like those two songs are always played at every, like, store that I go in, like, in December. One of those songs is always playing. So um, that's just how I feel there uh, about those songs. Um, I just feel like at this stage of my life, there are just so many expectations that are, um, are surrounded around Christmas. There's the presents, there's the decorations, the memories that are um, supposed to be created by me. And it feels like everybody else on Facebook really enjoys this process, right? Um, all of my friends, it seems like their families are um, enjoying the season and, and there's like these beautiful pictures of their family in like matching Christmas pajamas, you know? And um, if I'm honest, I just am not really feeling it this year. I don't really want all those expectations of doing it all and getting it all done and making it all look perfect, which is honestly a little bit weird for me because um, you might not know this, but I, I love sparkles. I love twinkly lights. I love decorations. I love themes. Man, do I love a good theme, all right? That is me. Um, I, I want the gifts underneath the tree to have a theme. That is what I want, um, but not really this year. Instead, this year, um, I feel like I'm enjoying Advent. And for me, it's um, been a little bit different than um, celebrating Christmas. Um, the idea of Advent is kind of new for me. I didn't grow up in, in a liturgical church where we kind of um, really talked about Advent very much, but I've really found a difference between Christmas and Advent. If you remember um, the first week of the series, Larry talked about how during Advent we are kind of given permission to be emotionally honest with ourselves, where we're able to kind of say that, yes, we're excited about Jesus's birth, and yet we're still struggling. We're still um, afraid, and we're still sad, and we're still um, angry about things that surround us, and we're uh, given permission during Advent to just be honest about that. And I, and I think during Advent, we're also encouraged to kind of look at some scripture that maybe we don't look at and really focus on at other times during the year. And so for me, I've really craved the simple and the quiet and the slow in the Advent season. It's been what I've really needed because right now I don't really feel like pretending that everything is perfect. I'm in this space in my life where I want to be real about what isn't perfect in life. And I, I think, for me, that's because um, this year I've really learned a lot. 
My world has really been expanded this past year, and I've really been changed. Um, a large uh, reason why that has happened this past year is because um, a year ago at this time, I really felt like God was calling me to be intentional and make a commitment for 2017 um, that I would try not to read any books by white men. So um, for me, I read a lot of books for my job, and I also just enjoy reading books, so I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction. And I came to this realization about a year ago that um, somehow in my life's experience, I came up with this um, unintentional but kind of faulty narrative um, that had been kind of taught to me that if you want to learn something, and especially for me, if you want to learn something about the Bible and God, that you learn it from a white man. And um, for me, that's just because my own experience. I um, went to uh, a university where all of my professors just happened to be white men. Um, my, all my pastors had been white men, and, and so they had uh, recommended books that just happened to be all written by white men. And, um, and so I want to say white men are great. Um, <laughs> I'm happen to be married to one, so it, it, it isn't anything against white men, but um, I, I knew I had to be intentional about learning from more people, right? Um, putting myself in the position that I can learn from different genders, from um, people of color, and that I needed to be intentional about that. And so that's what I did this year. And so I read books from... Um, Native American authors, um, Christian leaders, um, Korean American and Caribbean American and um, African American, both men and women. And what I found was there was this theme throughout all of these books, whether they were talking about um, ministry or um, community development or they were just talking um, commentaries about from scripture, all of them um, were kind of bringing up this idea of shalom. And I know we've talked a great deal about that this year, um, this idea of shalom. And it was the first time that my eyes had really been opened to how much it's through Scripture. This word shalom that shows up in the very beginning of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. This idea of shalom, that this Hebrew word that is often translated as peace, but it means more than that. It's what we see in the garden. When God created the world, we see shalom. What is there is that there's no separation between God and man. There's no separation between man and one another or man and creation, nature, and animals. All of them are universally flourishing. And in my reading over this year, what I found is that... Um, Talking about Jesus and his birth isn't just about what that offers me individually, individual salvation that Jesus is bright, his life brings me, but it's also about the liberating salvation that Jesus' life is bringing to all of creation, that is bringing shalom back to this world. And so I've also read a lot of um, fiction and memoirs, um, some really tough stories this past year. Um, stories of survivors, stories of immigrants from all over the world, stories from um, the poor and the desperate and the marginalized. And I've really been inspired by these stories, but also truly heartbroken. 
And not just the stories I've read, but your stories. I've watched as you've endured physical hardship, physical pain, how you've struggled through financial worry, injustice, painful childhood memories that still are something that you deal with. And I have my own stories as well, my own struggles, my own worries. And all of these stories have brought me to a place this year where I don't feel like focusing on my normal Christmas traditions. I want something else. Instead of the expectation of Christmas, I want this Advent to focus on the expectation that Jesus is coming again and that shalom is possible. And that's what the gospel song that I've learned about is um, claims that trouble don't last always. So today, we're going to focus on the poetic imagination of the prophet Isaiah and this passage that Matthew read for us in Isaiah 35. And we're going to join with him in expectation of the arrival of a different reality than the one we know is true today. So the prophet Isaiah is writing to um, the Jewish people living in the kingdom of Judah. I don't know if you remember that um, in history in the Bible that the Jewish people are broken into two different kingdoms. And so Isaiah is talking to the kingdom of Judah, and he's writing to them and speaking to them um, around 700 years before Jesus' birth. And so Isaiah is a really long book. I don't know if you've ever read it um, before, but it also spans a great deal of time. But the theme of the first half of the book of Isaiah, so um, chapter 1 through 39, there's kind of two themes in the book of Isaiah. And the first theme is that of judgment. Isaiah is called to speak judgment against the kingdom of Judah for their rebellion and their idolatry and the injustice that they're allowing to happen around them. But the other theme is that of hope. And so we see this back and forth, back and forth, judgment and hope. And so um, Isaiah is, is giving them hope that not only is change possible, but he's saying it's going to happen. And this is where, Isaiah is where we see some of the details, the first details of Jesus' birth predicted. That that is part of the hope that we have. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this detail. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that um, word that means, that name that means God with us. And so here Isaiah is predicting that the Messiah is going to share life with us, share our humanity, that he will be with us. Remember, um, this is 700 years before Jesus is born. He's predicting this. And then again, we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, He says this, of the greatness of his kingdom, speaking of the Messiah, of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So here we find out that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, of King David. 
And we see that that happens in the beginning of the Gospels. We see that the reason why Jesus is born in Bethlehem is because there's a census and, and every family needs to go to where their family's descendants are from. And so Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem because Jesus is from the line of David, predicted 700 years before his birth. So Isaiah speaks of the hope of a Messiah, of a Savior who's coming to be with his people and to save them. But he also speaks very strongly about how angry God is at their actions and their hearts. And so I want us to kind of just see the difference between um, what judgment looks like, this message of judgment, and the message of hope. And so we're going to just step back and read the chapter that comes before uh, Isaiah 35. And I'm just going to warn you that you will not see this passage on any Christmas cards um, with glitter on it at all. It's kind of a different message, so prepare yourselves, all right? Okay, so this is what he says. He says, come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Now, this is some dark stuff, right? Um, this is uh, poetic. It's not supposed to be taken literally. Um, but we see this kind of huge contrast between the two chapters, that things here are not good. They're not perfect. And so Isaiah uses this uh, poetic description of what happens, the result of rebellion and allowing injustice around you. And that description is a description of death. The effect it has on not just people, but on also on creation. And so he uses words like withered and shriveled and even stink. That that is the result of their behavior. That they've brought on themselves and to creation. But he doesn't leave them there. And he quickly turns the, to the alternative that is going to happen. That is going to come. And so this is what he says in, in Isaiah chapter 35. He says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Do you see this theme of life coming out of death? And we see that theme throughout the whole Bible, that God is a God who brings life out of death. That the desert and the wilderness, which was once dry and barren, can now burst into bloom. And it's a physical description of how even creation is able to be healed. But also with emotions like gladness and joy to see God's splendor. 
So I don't know if you've ever been to the desert before. Um, the desert can be a beautiful place, but it's very different. Um, it looks very different. I've, I've spent some time in Arizona and Utah, and what I've noticed is that there is um, very little colors in the desert, right? So it's a lot of grays, a lot of browns, maybe a little red in um, the soil or the, the rocks, um, but not a lot of color there. And so my family, once we, we drove from Utah all the way into Colorado. It was a long um, drive. But I, I started to notice, you know, we're driving through Utah and just seeing kind of the same thing over and over again. No tree, you know, not very many trees, just ground and dirt, not in any cities, no place to eat. Um, it was kind of a long drive. And then all of a sudden you hit Colorado and you start to see green and grass and trees and even wildflowers with lots of different colors. And I even remember, this has been a while, but my memory is driving along this beautiful stream, maybe even a river um, that was flowing. And uh, I just remember the beauty of that. And I think some of the beauty was that we had just come from the desert, right? And here is water and flowers and vegetation. And it was like, excitement for our eyes to see the difference. And this is kind of the splendor that Isaiah is describing, but just not gladness for our eyes, but gladness for our souls. Because for years, we know what struggle is and pain. But Isaiah is saying that that will end and that life is going to burst through. And so he continues, he says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, and say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. And I know that there are those among us who need to be strengthened this morning, who need to be steadied, some who are struggling with physical suffering, but um, many of us are just also struggling with emotional hurt. And so that is one of the reasons why we gather together. It's why we gather together in groups throughout the week. It's why we get together one-on-one, -on -one, why we text one another and call one another, because we are here for each other to say to one another, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come to save you. And 700 years after this message of Isaiah, we see a similar message that the angels give the shepherds in the fields. And we find it in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. This is what the angels say. They say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Be strong. Do not fear. Your, your God will come to save you. So what does it look like when the Savior comes? What does universal flourishing look like for all people and creation? Well, Isaiah, he describes it like this. He says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness 
and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. He's saying once you guys will experience suffering and thirst and know what danger looks like. But that will no longer be true. Because eyes will be opened and water will bubble and gush. And where there was once danger, God's going to replace that with a garden. And I think it's very intentional to bring our memory back to the beginning of creation. And we see kind of a similar um, passage with Jesus' response at the very beginning of his ministry. When followers came to him, they came from um, his cousin, John the, John the Baptist. Um, John, if you remember, he knew that his job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so he came, we find him in the very beginning of the Gospels, um, that he, his job is kind of to declare that people are supposed to prepare themselves to repent because the Messiah has arrived. And so he wants to make sure at the beginning of this, that of Jesus's ministry, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he sends John sends his followers to Jesus just to make sure um, that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is Jesus' response that we find in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. He says, the blind, he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's talking about shalom. He's talking about life coming out of death. So, for those of us here, what should we remember? What should we reflect on during Advent? I think it's important that we acknowledge that we're in this unique position as we read the passage in Isaiah 35. That position is that we are living in the already and the not yet. We're living in this time where Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, has come to save us, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us through the struggles in our life, and yet things are not yet perfect. Danger is still around us. We still thirst for more. So this week of Advent, Christians all over the world are focusing on joy. How do we who are living in the already and not yet have joy? What does that even look like for us? Does it mean the same thing as happiness? If you look at um, advertising surrounding Christmas, you kind of get this idea that joy and happiness are the same thing. You know, the joy of a child opening a present on Christmas morning or the joy of a family sitting around the dinner table and having a meal together. This idea that you can kind of pursue joy like you might pursue happiness or happy feelings. But is that true joy? Is joy about our security? Does it come from possessions? What brings us true joy? And the question is, can you have joy even if you don't have the presence, if you don't have the security, the family around the table together? 
So um, there's a pretty well-known um, Christian author, speaker, professor named C.S. Lewis, wrote lots and lots of books um, um, during the last century. Um, and I've read many of his books, and he definitely talks and um, writes a lot about this idea of joy. And what does true joy mean? He, he pondered it a great deal. And he wrote this once, um, that real joy, he says, seems to me almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is agony. Real joy seems to me almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is agony. And uh, I see in C.S. Lewis's life why he came to that discovery. So recently, Larry and I went to um, see a play on Broadway called Shadowlands together. Um, it's about C.S. Lewis's life. Um, they made that play into a movie several years ago. Um, in fact, it came out in 1994. Um, I know that because it just happens to be um, what Larry and I went to see on our very first date, um, which I should say, it really isn't first date material. Um, because it's about uh, C.S. Lewis's life, um, uh, his, li his late life as a bachelor. So uh, by, at this point, he's in his late 50s. He's written lots of books, become famous. He wrote the, um, the Chronicles of Narnia series with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, um, many people knew who he was. He was a um, very famous pro professor. People came to hear him speak. Um, and he was kind of a bachelor, you know, like he didn't have to worry about anything else in his life. He shared his home with his bachelor um, older brother, you know, kind of did what he wanted, uh, maybe a little cranky um, older guy. And then he, he met this woman who at first was just a friend of his, and then um, he kind of falls surprisingly in love this late in his life. Um, but it has kind of a tragic it's kind of a tragic love story. Um, he finds out just as they get married that um, his wife has uh, terminal cancer, and so they, she dies after four years. So clearly not really what you want to see on your first date, right? Um, but uh, it worked for us. I, I, I don't know what to say, what that means. Um, but uh, so we went and saw it again um, just this fall. And I was kind of just reminded of the story about how this, you know, Oxford, Oxford professor, um, all of his beliefs about love and faith and joy were really turned upside down when he experienced it himself, when the grief was his, and it was so real in his life. And he had to kind of struggle and re-understand what does joy mean even when you're going through grief. And this is what he said, and it's kind of the theme of the whole play and movie. He says, the pain now is part of the happiness then. That part of the pain that he was dealing with when he lost his wife is that he once knew happiness when he got to share his life with her. And I think that is true when it comes to grief. And it made me think about our own pain right now. And I thought that maybe um, this truth is true of all humanity as well, that part of the pain now is part of the happiness then. That 
Humanity, as humans, we know pain. But we once knew complete peace. That humanity was created for shalom and peace. And once we had that in the garden, it talks about how God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. Just imagine that. Walking with God at the end of your day. Intimately sharing life together. No separation. That that is what we were made for. And that is why our pain is so profound, because we weren't made for this. We were made for that. And our complete joy when Christ returns is why we're able to have joy now, even though we might be living in less than joyful circumstances. That joy is not found by seeking joy in itself. It's found in seeking after God. That God is the path to joy. It's where we find it. And so Isaiah finishes in this chapter by saying, A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. And they will enter Zion with singing, Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. So we have joy now, even in less than joyful circumstances, because we expect that things are going to change. They will change. We live in expectation that things will change. And we say to one another, be strong. Don't fear. Your God will come to save you. And we let everlasting joy crown our heads. We let it overtake us. Because we know, we live in expectation that someday sorrow and sighing will flee away. So this morning, I I just want to close today um, with a prayer from a book of prayers that I read this um, year called Soul Prayers by a woman named Diana Hayes. Um, She's a theology professor at Georgetown University. And she wrote these prayers. um, They're personal and they're beautiful, but they're very personal to her own struggle. She um, struggles with uh, severe arthritis. Um, It's debilitating. She is unable to really walk some days. It's so bad. Um, But before, she used to be this kind of avid hiker. And so she's just kind of struggling with um, her life of pain, physical pain, but also the place that it has taken her spiritually and emotionally, that she um, describes it as feeling like she's living in a desert, like she's living in the wilderness. And so um, I just want us to kind of meet her in this place. And let her prayer be our prayer as well. And so I just encourage you to kind of um, close your eyes and um, that we would pray this prayer with her as well. She says this. She says, I am tired. I'm weary of trying to make people understand what it means to be me, black, female, in this white male world. 
And I'm weary of watching the children, my children, though not born of my womb, black, brown, children of all races, start out bright and full of hope in their early years, only to end up dulled and hopeless by the time they're adolescents. Where am I going, Lord? Where are my people going? Where are we all going, Lord? And why have you called me out into this howling wilderness of death and greed and anger and pain? What do you want of me, a crippled, weak of, of limb, yet with a mind filled to bursting with the knowledge of the pain, of the suffering and growing despair of people, a people of many races? Where is the kingdom that was promised us? And how can I show others the way when I feel lost myself, when I cannot seem to find the door and I am unable to see the light? I cannot bear it alone, Lord. I cannot bear it alone. For what have we suffered all these many years? For what am I suffering now? My hope lies in the dream of a new understanding of civilization, a new understanding of humanity that does not require the dehumanizing of some and the exalting of only a few. I seek a new vision that upholds us all, regardless of race, race, ethnicity, color, or sex. My hope lies in you, Lord, in your vision of a better world to come and in your creation. Once you walked this earth and created a people, both male and female, you created them of every race and color and hue. You created them, and you took joy in that creation, and you love them. Help us to reclaim that joy you felt when you gave us life. Help us to renew our love of you and each other. Grant that we may regain our hope and our faith, that we may renew our strength, that we might run and not grow weary, so that once again as a people, a many-nationed and multi-hued people, that we may mount up on eagles' wings and fly away from that Tower of Babel that we created through our own selfishness and greed, a monument to our blindness. Show us the way. Show me the way. Help me to look once again into the blinding light of your love so that I may somehow, some way, walk with my people, all of God's people, into that light with your guidance and with your strength surrounding me, shoring me up on every leaning side. I know I will be able to continue to work with others towards the day when that new world will be born. It will be born within our very midst, and we will all rejoice its birth together as one people of many colors, but of one faith and one loving and liberating God. Amen. So this Advent, I, I pray that you take this message to be strong and to not fear that your God will come to save you.